When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Royal Institute of British Architects names its three presidential contenders. A US property price slump casts doubts over London's residential market. The City Corporation is urged not to demolish the old Museum of London. And the row over a prime ministerial treehouse at Chequers while thousands of homes lay vacant in the capital. My name is Merlin Fulcher and I'm an architectural journalist and I'll be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. Welcome to The London. My guest this week here at Bureau and Design District is Ryiwa Oki. Ryiwa is a candidate for the RIBA presidency and an architect working at MACE. Welcome to the show. Hi Merlin, thank you for having me on the show. The Royal Institute of British Architects, the RIBA, has named the three candidates in the running to be its next president, including our guest this week, Ryiwa Oki. The AJ has published a comprehensive look at each of the candidates, as well as handy interviews with all three people in the running. The candidates, who each had to receive at least 60 nominations from chartered RIBA members to get on the ballot, also include Allies and Morrison partner Joe Bacon and the author and academic Sumita Singer. The announcement follows a controversial and surprise election rule change that has meant that any recently joined members of the Institute will be barred from voting. Singer, who is standing for a second time after running against the incumbent president Simon Alford in 2020, is the founder of Ecologic and director of environmental design charity Charashilla. She spoke of her plans to urge the RIBA to offer its own professional indemnity insurance to firms undertaking risky projects and to improve diversity within the industry. She also said she would, quote, be a rebel president and make trouble in seeking to tackle climate change, which she said was top of the agenda. Bacon, speaking to the AJ, stressed the importance of embracing the design challenges of the climate crisis by urging all members to adopt the RIBA 2030 challenge. She said, quote, areas that need working on include the definition of net zero carbon, new circular economy models and toolkits for renovation of existing domestic building stock. We must lobby the government effectively, but at the same time upskill our members, said Bacon. The outsider of the three, Oki, who has not yet been elected to the Institute's Governing Council and was nominated as an architectural worker candidate by campaigners including the Future Architects Front, said, quote, The plan is to energise the RIBA in unprecedented ways, such as putting workers first through flexible membership and RIBA standards policing. The winner will be announced at the start of August following a one-month voting period between 28th of June and 26th of July. 
They will be president-elect for one year, working with the incumbent leader before serving as president for two years, beginning in September 23. So, alongside architects, a lot of our listeners are people who just love uh, London's built environment heritage and the discussions around architecture and those debates. And um, some of them, they might not be able to vote for the RIBA president. They might not have even heard of the RIBA president before. Um, you know, should RIBA presidents be more influential, be more understood more widely? You know, should it be more relevant? Yes, and I think that is one of the reasons why um, there is this this um, galvanizing force to uh, change the industry because the RIBA needs to be accessible. And in, in that terms, we need the RIBA president RIA members to be across wider spectrums of society, to be on TV, um, championing and uh, lobbying groups um, on issues that affect the built environment. And the biggest one so far is the climate emergency. We need to be talking a little bit more about it and how architects um, can affect affect the, that, um, that issue. So a lot of the issues we talk about the show, there are also issues being talked about within the wider industry, are to do with architecture's role with regards to the climate crisis, also inequality on a local and national scale, and obviously uh, the provision of affordable, genuinely affordable housing. Um, What role could and should the RIBA and the RIBA presidency be playing in tackling these massive challenges which impact everybody, especially in a city like London? The RIBA's position on things matters. That position needs to be made clear to the wider communities. That position needs to be first developed in-house through council, but also we need to be a little bit more agile in the way we are setting standards because the way we influence is by setting standards. Um, And I I believe the RIBA should be engaging more on the international stage. Um, And currently there's a World Urban uh, Forum, the W. WUF, um, currently happening in Poland. Uh, It's one of those premier global conference on sustainability and urbanization. Uh, And what they urgently need is um, advisors and experts to plan for the scale of challenge that we face ahead. And I believe that this is where, in in things like this, in conferences like this, is where we need to see um, our representation through the RIBA. Um, I have a colleague who's actually there, but is there as a town planner, so with the RTPI. Um, and he, in conversations I had over the past um, couple of days, he was like, there are, there's, there's a distinct lack of architectural representation in these discussions. And if we want to be relevant, on the RIBA needs to want to be relevant, it needs to be sitting up and, and, and engaging in these public discussions and, and, and driving change through on the international stage that also affect um, national policies. So imagining uh, you're the RIBA president 100 days into the job, what would, your, what would your day look like? What would you be doing? What would you be prioritizing? One of the first things that I want to prioritize is setting up uh, a communications, a town hall. I've been talking about it as like town hall. So that's, that's the first thing that I want to do. Um, also, I would like to try to set up the, the organization as a decentralized, devolved um, structure where you, like I've said, make the regions the stars so that centrally um, the, 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 the London UK hub sets up, a, sets up the principle and gives tools to Manchester, the Midlands, the, the Northeast, the, the different tools that it need to tackle the issues 
at hand. So, for example, affordable housing. Affordable housing manifests differently in London than it would in Manchester or Birmingham. Um, and they are wild we are in the same city, there is there are different um, actors, different um, um, clients, and we, how clients behave are different in, in these different reg regions. And it, it's the members in those regions that know how to um, lobby better. So I think that, that conversation needs to happen, and the tools to make that happen is something that I want to, um, to, to get in and embed first in the first 100 days, first year of, uh, of my presidency. And uh, as we covered on London before, the RIVA recently held an architecture competition to revamp Portland Place, its extraordinary headquarters in the centre of London. Uh, Benedetti Architects won it. Um, that's a project uh, that I guess, if you're president, that's going to be going through planning, tendering, construction. How does that all fit with your vision uh, for the Institute? Because I'm an outsider, I'm not inside, I don't know the details of that project. It's very hard for me to comment on it. Until I see the details, it, it will be it's relatively difficult to say anything, um, yes or no, the continue or not. Um, so I'm just going to wait till, till that time to, to make a, make a, make a, uh, have a stance on it, a definite stance on it. A slump in residential property prices across the pond is painting a worrying picture of what might be to come in the UK as the end of ultra-cheap debt causes the values of homes to tumble by as much as 10%. This week, the Financial Times published an in-depth analysis of what is shaping up to be a worldwide shock to the property market. Listed property stocks have tanked this year, with the US's Dow Jones Real Estate Index down almost 25% since this time last year, and the UK property stocks not far behind, with a 20% decline in the same period. Ronald Dickerman, president of Madison International Realty, a private equity firm investing in property, said, quote, Everyone selling everything is being price chipped by prospective buyers or else buyers are walking away. I cannot overemphasize the amount of repricing going on in real estate at the moment. The reason, says the FT's George Hammond, is due to rocketing borrowing costs, which is pushing sellers to lower their costs and investors to accept lower returns. In the wake of the pandemic and e-commerce renaissance, office and shop owners have been left bearing the brunt of this downturn, to the degree that some are speculating that the total value of New York's offices may ultimately fall by almost a third. Meanwhile, as the latest twists and turns of the housing market leave some biting their nails, one major retailer has proposed a way forward. Last year, John Lewis Partnership announced plans to deliver 10,000 rental homes over the next 10 years. Half of them will be built using property already within its portfolio, now they have revealed that Lifshitz, Davidson, Sanderlands and Asale Architecture have become their first architectural appointments. So, Muiwa, while this is still speculative, it looks like the global property market is hurtling towards a crash. What would this look like for London's built environment and for architects working in this city? It, it, it looks like it's going to be a little bit bleak. Um, what I want to focus on as as the arc as a as a champion of architects like i said an ambassador of architects and ambassador of the profession is that um architecture shouldn't be defined um as this narrow design of of constructing of buildings it's if you look at the rib work stages from zero to seven each work state or work stream is a mode of operation and we should lean when times are bad in the construction industry mainly in the construction industry we should lean into 
developing, um, uh, working with our clients in stage zero, um, and also in stage seven, which is the post-occupancy um, uh, end of the um, of the uh, stage of work work with our clients with to understand how how if how to make their buildings more efficient but also again also think about it in their whole property portfolio um uh, sort of macro macro level um and, and i think these roles have been sort of carved out by other specialized forces and i think we should sort of release ourselves from those shackles and and um and, and work effectively work um, in, and strive towards working in all the river work stages and be, be proud to be, be working in those, in those um, stages. Um, and that way we can upset the downtimes that might be happening, the hangovers that might be happening um, that we're seeing with um, um, inflation uh, and, 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 and rising interest rates. Well, certainly with the last crash, it was delivery of new buildings that really took uh, the hit. You know, we saw thousands of projects going on hold. We saw record numbers of architects being made redundant. And we also saw um, all kinds of disruption to our townscapes and built environment. You know, projects boarded up and so on and so forth. Um, what could the effect of this latest crash be on housing delivery in London? Uh, you know, this is a city which, uh, for better or many would say for worse, is massively dependent on the private sector for most of its housing. With delivery, new houses might see a shortfall, but also retrofit, because retrofit is, is something that we all engage in, even in a smaller scale. Retrofit might boom up. And I think one of the reasons, one of the ways in which retrofit might boom when new housing, new housing delivery might come to a sort of halt is through getting, uh, getting the 20% um, VAT tax out of um, uh, uh, retrofit projects. And I think that's something, a policy that the RIB should campaign on um, retrofit first. And by doing that, um, campaign to get the 20% um, VAT tax um, removed so that more of our members could carry on doing more work um, in the, within the industry when they see a downturn in uh, new, um, new housing, new housing delivery. The City of London has been urged to rethink plans by Dilla Scafidio and Renfro and Shepherd Robson to demolish the current home of the Museum of London and the 1970s Bastion House office building. This story was covered in the Evening Standard and the AJ, which has been covering the twists and turns of fate of this iconic Paul and Moyer design building. The Museum of London will close as a visitor attraction at its London Wall site in December in preparation for its relocation to the Smithfield General Market, uh, while Bastion House is due to become vacant next year. Local Barbican residents, heritage bodies and amenity societies express concern about the case for demolition and the campaign group Barbican Quarter Action has written an open letter to the corporation raising concerns over the embodied carbon cost of the redevelopment project. The City of London, which has a target to achieve net zero by 2040, has since published the whole life carbon assessment for the project. However, it is still pressing ahead with a proposal to flatten the buildings, despite the option generating more carbon emissions than the alternatives. The proposed development, which is currently out to a second round of public consultation, includes a 17-storey new Bastion House, creating 40,000 square metres of office space, a performance and events area, and additional cultural and learning spaces. 
So Muiwa, we talk a lot about embodied carbon on this show. It's a massive issue gaining growing recognition to the point it now appears a private member's bill to regulate and reduce embodied carbon in new buildings over a thousand metres squared is reportedly making a bit of a comeback in Parliament. Um, with such growing awareness of the environmental costs of dem- demolition and rebuild, should the City of London Corporation rethink these plans? For listeners out there who aren't like trained in, in, in built environment, architecture, engineering, I'll explain what embodied carbon is. It means um, CO2 and energy used to extract, transport raw materials and also manufacture it. So when we're talking about it in this case, a retrofit or demolition of a, of a, a status building, um, reading a couple of articles about it in the AJ and things, um, the City of London quoted... So saying it's, it is choosing to make this carbon investment unlock the greatest amount of benefits at the site. So it's choosing to spend this carbon so that it can reap the social rewards from it. And just looking at the plans itself, it, it looks like it's building more offices. And I ask myself, does the City of London need more offices? I don't want to comment too much on, on what the City of London are doing, but in, in a sort of broader sense, retrofit should be first, and what carbon is going to be the, the most significant um, criteria um, that uh, you have to take into consideration, and therefore the RIB should take a stance on, on what, um, uh, embod- what embodied carbon looks like and how to count it, but also what, how you justify demolishing projects when we know embodied carbon is the, the main factor for, um, for how, we, how we operate in the industry. So we're talking about the City of London Corporation. It's the local authority for the Square Mile, an extraordinary place with lots of very interesting buildings. Um, one of them uh, is the Grade 1 listed Lloyd's Building, a real uh, amazing piece of high-tech architectural heritage, all shiny and technical with its services on the outside of the building. Um, it's been reported that Roger Stoke Harbour and Partners, that's the practice set up by Richard Rogers, who designed the building originally back in the 70s, um, is drawing up plans for the transformation of this purpose-built structure, um, potentially uh, into a hotel, according to the, the reports that have been published online. Um, so the, the occupier uh, hasn't decided whether what they want to do with the building in, its, in the future. And reportedly, the, the owner uh, has begun looking into ways to repurpose this like, iconic structure. Um, so if that could be repurposed and made into like a hotel or something else, then um, why can't the same thing happen here with the Museum of London? Those were the ideals of um, the high-tech movement, as I understood it, that they were, they were building it so that it could be flexible enough. In my previous practice, um, Grimshaw, who was also one of the high-tech movement um, uh, pioneers, um, reconstituted, retrofitted um, the Herman Miller building into the Bath, uh, University of Bath um, um, Art School. And those are the ideals that they were espousing in the 80s and 90s. And now it's, it's good that we are now seeing... Um, the, the ideas come to life um, 30, 40 years after. Post-COVID, we still need a sense of community, a sense of a place. And the high street and uh, these urban city centres need to create that sense of space, sense of place, sense of belonging. And I don't think retrofitting or demolishing to build new offices is the, that type of sense of uh, community um, that, uh, that, is, that is needed uh, post, um, 
post, um, the post-COVID, post-pandemic. The Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, planned to build a treehouse for an eye-watering £150,000. It was reported in The Times this week in a story that blew up over social media and was later picked up by The Metro, Guardian, Independent and The Mirror. According to reports in 2020, Boris and his wife Carrie Johnson had plans drawn up for a treetop playhouse for their son, built using expensive bulletproof glass that was to be funded by a Conservative Party donor. These proposals for the grounds at Chequers, the country house of the Prime Minister, were later scrapped when its visibility to a nearby road was flagged as a security issue. However, Downing Street sources claimed the Prime Minister was also warned about the optics of spending £150,000 on a treehouse during a housing crisis. The surge of media interest around the treehouse makes an ironic comparison to another report out this week which didn't quite get as much attention, uh, but is also to do with expensive trophy homes that are mostly unused and unavailable to live in. Uh, The local news blog MyLondon reported that £130 billion worth of residential property sits empty within the capital. This equates to 87,731 vacant homes across 32 boroughs, and shockingly, one borough alone has nearly 5,000 empty homes. This data, published by the curiously named CIA Landlord Insurance, shows that Southwark has 4,976 vacant houses, uh, 1,211 of which are owned by the council itself, according to 2021 reports. So, Muyiwa... Let's start off with this news about Boris Johnson's £150,000 treehouse. Um, how much money is that in terms of a project of this scale, even if it did require bulletproof glass? Um, and um, have you heard of any ways designers and planners have used similar budgets more effectively? I, yes, the way that you can use that money more effectively is by um, creating ways to get better engaged with the communities. I have friends who are working on um, different projects that looks at um, commu- digitizing um, uh, community engagement. Uh, and that is, that is the best way to bring people along with you, but also make sure that they, um, they, they share in the, the, the gifts and profits and, and the riches of um, the, the, the local authority that, that, that they, they live in. Um, and... That's one way I, I would see in spending uh, a sort of uh, astronomical amount of money like that, um, and uh, I, I, I just I do think it's a little bit out of touch. Um, yeah, that's I think that's the only thing I can really say. Really, it's out of touch. It feels ridiculous. It is ridiculous, but um, it's the kind of way that things happen in in, in the Tory donor partnership. <laughs> So obviously the comparison here is to the shocking scale uh, of inequality in the capital. Uh, this report has shown that there's nearly 88,000 vacant homes. Um, statistics from the Combined Homelessness and Information Network have shown that between April 2020 and March 21, there were 11,018 people seen sleeping rough on the streets of London. Um, yeah, these, these figures show that rough sleeping has increased 94% in the last decade. Um, we often think about the housing crisis as a problem resulting from the lack of housing. Um, how do these latest figures uh, reframe this debate uh, in terms of uh, the number of empty homes? I've seen these figures reported over the past few years, and it's just that um, lack of accessible access to 
uh, good housing that um, has never been really uh, sorted out since um, the 1980s with Thatcher's plans of selling council housing and no reinvestment in, 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 in public housing stock. And I think it's also that mindset um, since the 80s that, you know, having owned a home is the best investment that you can have. You know, it's like the English version to the American dream. And I want to bring it back to what the RIB can do. Um, at the moment, not very much because um, we are a, a membership body. And what we, well, what we can do is set up a, a culture within our membership organization to work with, um, work with, uh, work with people who are providing um, housing, uh, better housing, affordable housing. We're now on to the culture section. Uh, so uh, coming up uh, in London's architecture and built environment culture, uh, the big thing is next week, it's the launch of the Accelerate exhibition. This is Open City's flagship education programme, helping youngsters aged 16 to 18 from underrepresented backgrounds uh, get into architecture school and get on and have a career as a, as a designer and creator of our future cities. Um, the exhibition is launching on Thursday. It's happening here in Design District uh, in North Greenwich in the C1 building, for those that don't know it. This is the Architecture 00 designed uh, building right at the front with a basketball court on the roof. And we've got the ground floor where we're going to be having an exhibition launch. It's going to be a really, really cool show. You can see the, uh, the drawings, the models, uh, the artworks and the inspirational material that's been put together by people who participated in this program. Uh, so it's launching on Thursday, the 7th of July, and the exhibition will be open uh, to check out until the 13th of July. Uh, so another uh, big thing that's going on uh, in culture right now is the Sun and Sea installation, which is at the Albany in Deptford. Um, it's basically an indoor beach, uh, which is there until the 10th of July. It's a durational artwork uh, with uh, opera singing that kind of unfolds on a loop over several hours. Um, it's a piece that was uh, Lithuania's national entry for the 2019 Venice Biennale, which actually won uh, the Golden Lion. It was like the, the number one installation for the art Biennale, not the architecture Biennale. Um, and it's been described as a kind of urgent exploration of our relationship with the planet, the threat climate change presents and the dangers we face if it is ignored. Um, I've seen a lot of photos and video of this. Uh, I've read the script for the song. I haven't actually been along. I'm trying to visit later this week. But is it, is it, has it caught your attention, this one? Yeah, it has. Um, and it's in Lewisham, South London, which is where I grew up in. So any opportunity to go down to South London, I'm, I'm, I welcome it with open arms. Fantastic. Well, Ryuwa, it's been a fantastic pleasure to feature you on The London this week. We hope you can join us again in the future. Um, where should our listeners go to stay up to speed on all the things you're doing? Is there a socials they should be checking out or a website? Yes, definitely. Um, so I have a website that I've, uh, I put together with the help of um, some colleagues um, for the campaign. It's called speakupforthefuturearchitect.co. That's speakupforthefuturearchitect.co. And you can reach me on my socials on LinkedIn, Moiwa Oki, um, Instagram, Moiwa.oki, and Twitter, Moiwa underscore Oki. Fantastic. Well, thanks again for being on the show. It's been an immense pleasure and uh, hope to see you again. You've been listening to The Lundown a show from Open City rounding up the big stories in architecture and the built environment each week in London. 
If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which has covered all these issues and many more too. You can find the show on Twitter or Instagram at at OpenCityLondon or by using the hashtag Lundown, L-N-D-D-W-N. Open City receives no public funding, so if you want to support our work, please go to open-city.org.uk support and sign up as an Open City friend. Open City is dedicated to making London a more open, accessible and equitable city. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.